Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined by author Anne Gislason. She is a creative writing teacher at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Her work has been featured in publications such as The Atlantic and Oxford America, and she has just released a memoir entitled The Futilitarians, Our Year of Thinking, Drinking, Grieving, and Reading, which we'll be talking about today. How are you doing today, Anne? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, to get, kind of get us in, uh, what is a futilitarian and where does one find one? Oh, my goodness. You can probably find them all over New Orleans and South Louisiana, <laughs> <laughs> not to mention the world over. Um, it's funny, the, uh, the, the book came out during hurricane season and a few weeks before we'd had the flood here and oh, the, the unexpected inundation of the city. And um, I was thinking, gosh, like, this is kind of like the, the perfect time for the futilitarians to come out. Um, and I think what I mean by that is that we, uh, the futilitarians, I think it's anybody who kind of accepts, accepts like the premise of, um, you know, we're, we're born into this world and um, we're born with the knowledge of our own demise and we're expected to carry on despite that. And so the futilitarians is about kind of accepting that and accepting a search for meaning and kind of committing to that, like no matter no matter what, it's it's kind of like committing to life and committing to disaster and committing to all those things. Um, but I think with also sort of with a with a, a sense of humor and compassion too. So that's the longish, shortish answer. <laughs> no, I, I like it. No, no, it, it makes sense. You, you know, you deal with it. You go there and you deal with it. What yeah, happens? And yeah. I, I like that. And there's a lot of of that in the book itself. You know, and people kind of dealing with all sorts of things. Um, how did you start writing this book, you know, because it's based obviously on your life being a memoir about this very contained period of time. But I'm wondering, where did you get the idea to turn this, these things that happened to you into a book form? Well, after the first meeting, which occurred in January, and the book is, uh, you know, 12 chapters, 12 months. It's a, it's a year-long um, kind of accounting of, the, uh, of our existential crisis reading group. And we met at the beginning of January of 2012. And all of these things happened all at once. Uh, we started the group. Um, my father died the next week. And, um, you know, we'd been reading literature like Ecclesiastes and Epicurus and thinking about these big things. And this huge, one of the biggest things that can happen to a person having a parent die happened at the same time. And so all of these things were going on in, in my head and in my heart. And I was like, I, gotta, I just got to get this down. And so after the first month, um, I started writing kind of an essay about it, um, about how the readings and the group influenced how I was handling my, my father's death. And then um, the next month, similarly, like big things kept happening and we kept reading these amazing things and, and having these discussions month after month. So after about six months of that, I was like, I really, really need to just um, get this all down and start kind of processing it and putting it together on the page in the way that you can't kind of do it in your head, you yeah. know. And um, so about halfway through, I asked the group, uh, my fellow existential crisis reading group members, I said, do y'all mind if I, if I write about this? I said, this is really, it's become such an important thing in my life, and I, and I really want to kind of grapple with it on the page. And everyone was very cool with it and very supportive, as they still are five years later, <laughs> as the book's coming out, and they're all in it. And um, so that was it. So about halfway through that first year, I was like, I'm going to keep... Um, keep writing about this and then by the end of the year by the time december came around like i knew i knew that i, I had a book interesting um one of the things I'm, I'm interested about is 
how you kind of grapple with with writing a memoir as a writer and kind of navigating that territory for, you know, artistic value and, you know, uh, seeking this truth there as well as just a person yourself with people that you know mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, this isn't you writing, you know, 40 years from now. This is you writing in this moment very soon <laughs> yeah. after. Uh, so what, what was that like for you? How did you navigate that? Yeah, it's been... Um, uh, I've kind of gone back and forth about a lot of things in terms of, uh, you know, how much to disclose. And, um, and I mean, it was, I was very clear about it from the beginning that I was, that I was writing about the group. And I gave people options to read it, to have their names changed if they wanted to. And there was a lot of um, talking with people along the way. And same with my family. Um, uh, they all knew, and I gave them the option to read it beforehand as well. And, um, but, I mean, honestly, it was my mother was the one that I was kind of the most concerned about. Yeah. And uh, and so she was the one whose, ex whose acceptance of the book sort of meant the most. But it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it hasn't been 100% um, smooth in terms of it coming out and people reading about themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to read about yourself. Even like me, if somebody like, even mentions a line or two or something, I'm like, oh, you know, it's kind <laughs> of, um, you know, you, you cringe a little inside no matter how flattering or non-flattering. I've had people say that they thought that I was too nice to them. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, that I was too generous towards their person. I'm not really that nice or that good or that funny. And um, and then someone who thought that maybe I was a little too... Heavy or hard. Too, yeah, yeah, a little too heavy or hard. And so that's been uh, that's been difficult to navigate because then you have to question your own motives yeah. as to why exactly you portrayed them like that. That's difficult. That's it's really, really difficult. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, one of the things I also was interested about is you start off with this Walker Percy quote at the, the beginning of the book, and I'll go ahead and read it uh, really quickly for, for people. The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. To become aware of the possibility of the search is to be on to something. Not to be on to something is to be in despair. That's from the moviegoer, excuse me. Um, I'm interested why you decided to start with that quote uh, to kind of preface the book and then also... What does uh, Walker Percy's work mean to you? Because obviously it has some sort of significance to, to include it right there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, uh, the search is something that became increasingly um, important from month to month, and it's still something that, that comes up a lot. And the search is kind of this, um, it's an unending search. There's really no kind of end to the search. You're not going to find the pot of gold or the answer or whatever. It's all about undertaking the search. Yeah. And um, and even towards the last the last month, um, reading the Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian writer, there was even one of her little chronicas, um, her little um, crazy little journalistic amazing pieces, um, called um, "Searching." And so the search is something that just kept coming up, kept coming up. And basically, in her piece, she's like everybody, every animal, every human is always searching for for something. That's kind of our mode of being in the world. And so it just kind of kept popping up yeah. month after month. And um, and so then I remembered the uh, the Walker Percy quote from the moviegoer, and I was like, oh, I think that's that's got to be that's got to be the quote. And I think I didn't come up with that until I finished the book, yeah, um, and got to the very end and realized how pervasive this idea was. Um, and in terms of Walker Percy, um, I, I read him a lot after um, after Katrina, which which is when I first started really writing nonfiction was after Katrina, and he was hugely influential to me for. For many reasons, and um, uh, not the least of which was his take on the city, his take on living in Louisiana, 
But also, he was someone who was always undergoing the search. He was, you know, deeply Catholic, but um, he was also, like any good Catholic, like filled with kind of doubt as well. And he understood the importance of doubt. He understood the importance of humor, of a good drink, of the kind of more carnal aspects of of life, kind of all of it. I feel like he took in all of the aspects of life, and he did it with such um, such intelligence and 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 heart and humor. And I always I always connected to that. Although half a lot of what he wrote was honestly just way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Yeah, I think yeah. it's over a lot of people's heads, including my own. Yeah. Uh, so the proto-futilitarian right there. Though. Right, right. Um, can we take a moment just to talk about how awesome Clarice Lispector is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I love her work. We read her complete stories here at the station a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, did you really? Oh, uh, we did. And wow. it, it's, it's fantastic, yeah. weird, and wonderful yeah. and all over the place. So yeah. um, what was your favorite aspect of her work? Um, I think her favorite aspect of her work was uh, the sense of freedom about it in reading it yeah. and it's something i love to teach the chronicas to um, my students at noca because it shows that that um some of these forms you can just kind of blow wide open like these were these things that were being printed in the newspaper yeah in the you know 60s and 70s in brazil just like any like regular newspaper but um but her language she was always just so intense and had no um she almost had like no no patience for like small talk or niceties or literary niceties or anything like that. Yeah. She was always kind of going for the the jugular in this um, in this way that was always like so unpredictable. Like you never knew what she was going to to say next. And so there was this kind of freedom and fearlessness in it. And with the chronicas, it was they were also so democratic. Yeah. Like you would just read them next to like the soccer scores or you know like what what what's on sale or what this politician is doing, and then you would see like a Clarice Lispector. Chronica, where she was just going <laughs> to lay it out about how unsatisfied and angry she was with life, um, and um, or even how much she was just loved life so much was yeah. like so, and that's why she would get so um, so worked up and, and angry and in a rage is because she just loved life so much, and um, but she was also just such a conflicted, conflicted person, yeah. you know. Um, so I think I think the the freedom of it and the joy of it is and the defiance in that joy is what I really appreciate about her. Cool. Um, to kind of pivot a little bit, um, you had mentioned you know Hurricane Katrina and mm. and to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, one of the things and and after the storm that pops up a lot is the word resilience, oh, yeah. uh, and especially after the tenth anniversary, it reached a peak. And I don't want to downplay, you know, what people have gone through, but I, I feel and I know that a lot of other people feel like that word has become such a buzzword that it lacks all meaning, has become a catch-all for anything, and kind of exists in a vacuum. And I, I wanted to kind mm -hmm. of hear your thoughts on that, how it pertains to uh, New Orleans literature after the fact, as well as New Orleans in general, mm -hmm. and, and to you. Yeah. Um, you mean the the use the overuse of the word the or overuse the, of the word and also as a um, kind of catch all for anything coming out of New Orleans that signifies you know mm -hmm. uh, struggle or, or perseverance. Mm -hmm. God, that's such a that's such a huge um, and complicated question. Um, I mean, I think I think when any word becomes overused like that, it'll just become flung around and. Um, and it will kind of lack its its original its original power, and um, but I think like what originally what it meant, and I think Katrina might have been the start of it because now when anything happens in any city like Boston after the bombing, Boston was a resilient city. Now everything is basically if something bad happens, and um, collectively we we deal with it, then you're resilient. I, I call that just like being a human 
yeah. being, you know, because most human beings just don't, like, lie down on the road when something happens and just, like, you know. Um, but I think maybe um, with New Orleans in particular, I think that uh, there were so many things about the city that people were so passionate about culturally. I think that's something that made um, the the rebuilding and everything that came out afterwards, um, like, so it's just so kind of intense and fraught. Um, that and um, how neglected the city had been um, in terms of our infrastructure and levy protection and, and all of that and the response, you know. Um, but I think in terms of, like, the literature that came after, I mean, honestly, since in the over the last 12 years, we've seen such a huge um, kind of growth of our of our literary community. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you know, immediately afterwards, it forged this sense of, oh, these are the things, these things are actually really, really important to civic life. And people kind of doubled down on on the literary scene, on the um, on the visual arts scene. You know, we started that nonprofit, Press Street, which then became Antenna. And, um, and we started doing readings and things, like, right after the storm when there was really, like, nobody around, you know. And, um, and so I think... I think some of that still lingers today, mm-hmm. um, even though some of those efforts have become more sort of institutionalized and um, maybe the, the initial urgency of it is maybe gone, but I think there's still that residual feeling that these things do matter yeah. in a different way that maybe in other cities, um, maybe they don't have that same sense. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the whole resilience it gets it gets it bites at it, which I think is interesting. And yeah. I, I kind of want to hear you talking about you know with yourself. You you went through a lot of struggles that you you mentioned in this book. You know, mm-hmm. with the the loss of of two of your siblings, uh, as well as the loss of your father. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear that word like resilient, like, you know, put to your story, how, how does that make you feel? Well, like I said, um, I just feel like it's it's a human reaction. Yeah, I think I think maybe um, my issue with the word. Resilience is that it takes something that's just kind of naturally a part of who we are and how we live and uh, brands it almost. Like yeah. it becomes a kind of brand, you know, and a shorthand for something. And I think whenever we have these kind of linguistic shorthands, then a lot gets lost Yeah. Um, in terms of how we deal with something. Like somebody might, you know, experience a, a deep loss and it might take them you know, six months to get over or six months to be able to kind of function again. For other people, it could take years. And I don't I don't think that makes that person any less, quote-unquote, resilient. It's just that we're, we just process aftermaths of things differently. I don't know if that makes that makes sense. And also, it's also saying that it's maybe some kind of virtue yeah. to, um, to bounce back. It's like, oh, like, um, because resilience, it almost has that buoyant kind of quality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something about that word, resilient. <laughs> Oh, I think about it as like, God, there was some, um, was it a paper towel commercial or something from years ago? The, like the brownie, the, resilient, the, the yeah. resilient, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like something like that where it's like, um, it's like this product, it's resilient, you yeah. know, it'll, you know, it'll hold water more or something like that and bounce back afterwards. And, um, and, and so it's just something that's expected, like something terrible happens to you and you have to be resilient and bounce back. Yeah. But like, I'm not sure why that's necessarily a... A virtue, yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, to, to kind of move away from that, I, uh, I, no, I thank you, thank you for 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 indulging right there. I think that that's really interesting thoughts on those subjects. Um, how how did the group itself form? 
Um, the group itself formed kind of in um, in December of 2011. Um, a friend of mine, Chris, he he you know, showed up at our our house as he usually does, just kind of drops in. <laughs> and I remember I was making dinner, and he and he asked me, he's like, you know, I've been having these, uh, you know, these. Uh, these kind of like thoughts and issues, and I would really love to just sit down with you one on one and just like read some read some literature and like and some essays and philosophy and talk with you one on one about it. I remember I was making dinner, and I was like, "Oh man, like I can't take on like another like project. I've got kids, I've got you know students and you know family to take care of. I've got you know I've got all these things going on. You know, my dad was sick, and I was like, I don't know, like one on one. I said, you know, if you want to open it up to a a larger like group and have it be a social thing, then you know that might be something I could, you know, I, could I could jump on too, but um, but not like another sort of like serious obligation like that. <laughs> and um, and also we had just been having him and I and other people. We'd been having conversations. I think that maybe it was the holiday season because it was in December, and just having these kind of these talks at these holiday parties. You know, it's, it's a time of year where you're expected to be in a certain state of mind. Yeah, the expectation is everyone to be you know joyous and cheerful and social. But sometimes you're just like, those are the t- moments where you just, you know, as anyone know about the holidays, you can also just feel like deeply despairing. Yeah. So I think it kind of came out of a lot of these like kind of party talks and things like that as well. And so um, so my husband and I was like, okay, we'll do that. We'll, we'll start one at our house. And we went to the Hot Walk Buffet down in St. Bernard Parish in Chalmette. And while the kids were running back and forth to the um, to the buffet table, we would, we just make a, made a list of people we thought might might entertain such a thing. Yeah. And um and we were very careful about the list. It took us a long time and we would scratch some people up. No, they probably wouldn't. And and not everybody knew each other too. Yeah. They were from different different spheres. Um but I mean everybody said yes right off the bat. Not everybody like stayed through. Most of them did, but everyone seemed um eager at least to give something like that a shot. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, especially with people that you you want to trust or like you f- figure out that personality type that yeah. you think is going to mesh, right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. not everybody meshes and that, no. that can be a struggle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I think, I think that's interesting. Um, you had mentioned Press Street and Antenna before. You mm. are involved over there, if I do believe. Um, yeah, I was on the... I'm, I've kind of like, I've moved away from that yeah. now. You know, we kind of after... Jesus, after 12 years or more um kind of decided it was it was time to to move on from the organization and, and let it let it go where it will um but i still you know they they produce the uh um, or hosted rather the, the book launch mm-hmm. and you know i still go to events and support and that's good yeah. yeah you know 12 years is a long time yeah, involved, so, time. so yeah. <laughs> yeah no but you uh, you teach at noca as mm-hmm. well yeah. um tell me uh, a little bit about uh, your teaching life there. What, what, what's your favorite thing about being a teacher, especially at the creative writing field? Oh, um, there's so many things I love about that job, and that's why I've been there for so long because yeah. I can't imagine a better um, a better job for me. Um, I think the thing that I I love is that I I get to go in every day and talk about literature with teenagers who also really want to talk about literature because they have to audition to get in. They have to have a level of there's a level of self-selection um, mm-hmm. for the students who end up in my classroom. And um, and I can throw any level of work at them, and they will be game for it. And they're still so, so open and eager. And that, like, for me, especially as I get older, um, I think that's that's really important for, like, my own, my own brain and uh, my own thinking. Like, I got a really nice message from a student who graduated last year and who had read the book. 
and you know saying how you know she was so grateful for having um you know for me having been her teacher and i told her I was like i'm grateful that you were such an amazing amazing student because i write all morning and then i feel pretty depleted by the end of the morning and then you know i show up in the afternoon to teach but they're just like raring to go and um and so they kind of like reinvigorated my thinking and i was always inspired by my by my students so um i think they're just like their sense of kind of freedom and ambition with their own work and openness is something that i like try to keep with my own writing too recharging so yourself recharge, you know, yeah like, i think yeah. it's it's definitely more of a um i think more of a symbiotic relationship than just like mentor mentee yeah kind of thing. i love that i love that there's yeah. a little bit more you know interplay there oh, God, you, yeah. you get a lot from that that's really good yeah um and it's a great program itself um when you are teaching writing, what is kind of your number one rule or what are the kind of beginning rules or the prominent rules uh, that you teach your students about? Is there anything such like that for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I hate the, like rules and writing. Like, yeah. oh, there's so many writers who've got rules, like my 10, top 10 rules <laughs> for writing, you know, for dialogue and this and that. Um, I think my kind of my major or maybe my my main focus, or, focus or rule, yeah, is, yeah. Um, is to really like to really show your your individuality and um and usually the way to kind of to show your individuality is to be as um specific or descriptive um really really paying attention to the language because these are your words that are going on the page and so i think getting um the students to um uh to really have a a kind of singular voice and a singular sort of expression that they're not going to see anywhere else um, is probably like my main goal for them. And oftentimes it has to do with how they perceive the world and getting those details down on the paper. Yeah. You know? No, I think that's interesting. Um, let's kind of turn back to the book a little bit. Um, you dive into, you know, traumas and grief, as we've mentioned before, including, you know, the, the death of your father. Uh, which is which is a very tough subject, but uh, in kind of digging that in the book, you you kind of get this fuller context for him and dig into his life and all the things that he's he's done. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that process and how that felt for you. Um, you mean in really like um, spending so much time with my dad in a way, like yeah. on the page yes. afterwards? Yeah, that was. Um, I think that was difficult because I was writing it not long after he died. It was still like within that year. And it was very different from writing about Rebecca and Rachel, who had died, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Um, this was a way more uh, kind of visceral, immediate sort of accounting. And, um, yeah, and it, wasn't, it wasn't all positive, but he was always such a, a mysterious person. And I think we always, always you know, felt at the, uh, you know, tomb side. It was like, oh, man, it's like all our opportunities for trying to understand him now we're now gone. There's just like kind of no more opportunities to um, talk to him about about things or try to get anything out of him. And so it was mainly kind of scrutinizing like my own memories and thoughts and um, and of course always connecting them back to the readings, which was also a concern in um, in the writing of the book is how they connected to what we were reading and my memories of my father and his life connected to how to what we were reading at the time. And um, most of the time it was very natural because I was thinking about him all the time anyway yeah. after he went. And so those connections just kind of naturally came up time and time again. Just because like when you're grieving, your mind is kind of wide open um, and very receptive. 
and at the same time sort of obsessed with this one person yeah. and his loss, you know. Um, but it wasn't always easy, and sometimes I felt uneasy because, you know, it was just a few years ago, and there's still people who, in the city who knew him and everything. But it seemed like in terms of what the book is about and, like, the search, like, you have to, you know, have to overturn a few stones that— you don't necessarily want to overturn. Yeah, you maybe don't necessarily yeah. want to overturn. You don't really want to know what's under them. Yeah, it's hard to put it back, too, uh, yeah. I can imagine. Um, yeah. No, thank you uh, for, for mentioning that. Um, as we get towards the, the end of our interview, I have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you hope people get out of this this memoir, uh, especially people that have gone through their own grief mm-hmm. and their own traumas? I guess maybe that there's so many different um, outlets out there for addressing things and um, that you can like take on these crazy projects and that it's possible to do this. And there are other people in your life um, who, um, who might want to join you in that, that it is kind of, it's grieving is more of a, a communal effort than I think people um, like to admit it's, it can be so isolating. Like it can be so, so incredibly isolating. And sometimes people around you kind of don't know how to act or, um, don't know how to react, but I think sort of embracing the communal um, in grief or going through something like that can be is very very helpful. I mean, there's tons of self help groups like that and everything, but um, but just that that such a project is is possible yeah. to do, and I think more and more um, we become so isolated with uh, you know we we turn more and more to the to the internet for answers, and um, and that can be even more isolating yeah. as well. Instead of just like being in a room with people and kind of like celebrating the fellowship aspect of it. Yeah, and that's know? an interesting dynamic because these are people that you know and love as well mm-hmm. yeah. uh, versus a, a group where it's it's more anonymous, which offers its own uh, own kind of sanctuary itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to kind of round us on out, uh, what are you reading right now and what is next for you? Oh, um, right now I'm reading Carl Ove Knausgaard's Autumn, ah. which just came out. And it's these beautiful brief little meditations on uh life he's kind of his, he's about to have a, another child and he's describing the world for her and um it's so beautiful and there's such a kind of this quietude and uh i'm so envious of this uh this kind of this quiet contemplation that he's able to have around these different subjects and uh it's beautiful i'm really enjoying it yeah cool and what about what's happening for you after uh the book. I know more more dealings with the book itself. Are you working <laughs> yeah. on anything? Um, yeah, more dealings. I would love to to move away from family trauma. It seems like the last few things I've written, whether yeah. it's essays for the Oxford American or anything else, have been a lot of uh, family trauma focused. Um, I actually the the most fun writing I've done has been about um, like bars and drinking and the dynamic inside hey. of bars. <laughs> and so I would like to do a, a longer project about that and we're in a, a perfect place to pursue that i think so project you know <laughs> oh you know we're all temperate down here you know yeah. <laughs> well, and thank you so much for coming on i had a pleasure speaking with you. oh thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure that was author Anne gislison whose new book the futilitarians our year of thinking drinking grieving and reading is out now and that's our show you've been listening to the writers forum on wrbh 88.3 fm here in new orleans You can catch our show every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., as well as Saturdays at 8.30 a.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. Just a little note, our schedule will soon be changing starting October 2nd, so our show will be moving to Thursdays at 3 p.m. and Sundays at 8.30.
9.30 a.m. As always, you can find it online at our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com, WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.